Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer, horror, and beyond. I'm excited because today in the studio, we have a true punk icon in my mind, a (laughs) filmmaker and actress, Kansas Bowling. Uh, Kansas is the force behind the feature film BC Butcher, as well as a number of awesome music videos that she's directed. And I know she's working on some new things, and we're going to talk about that today. So welcome to the show, Kansas. Hey, thank you. Uh, Now, the first question that I like to ask every guest that comes on, and you can interpret it however you like, is why horror? You know, like what drew you to the genre? What engages you about it? What is it about this that speaks to you? Um, When I was in high school, I was very fascinated with Roger Corman. And I thought, thinking as a business person horror seemed to be the easiest way to get started in the film industry and that's why I made my first film a horror film I'm not exactly loyal to the genre because I'm going to be making other things but that's why because I am well (laughs) and I think that's interesting that that was your tactic as a business person because Mm -hmm. for listeners who maybe are not familiar with your story and we talked a little bit about this before you went on the air you made BC Butcher your first feature film you Mm -hmm. wrote it when you were 15 yeah you in high school yeah yeah you shot it when you were 17 yeah and the film premiered when you were 19 yeah so you had this in mind early on that you were wanting to engage the world of show business And as a teenager, even then, you were like looking at Roger Corman and thinking, this is how I want to do it. Yeah, I basically had a whole plan of how my life was going to go when I was like 10 years old. (laughs) That's. And I was like, I'll make my first movie will be a trauma movie. Really? Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, I think when I was 10, I don't know what I was doing, but it was definitely not that. I was just probably excited that like there was a new X-Men cartoon on Saturday or something. but you've been making movies your whole life, right? I've, I've read that you and your sister started making f- films when you were very young and shot on film. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I mean, we I, I didn't get a film camera until I was 13, but I, we, we would just shoot on whatever we could find, really, like whatever cameras, or and we shot some on, like, webcams. and um, I don't know, it was just what we did for fun with our friends and stuff. We would make... We'd make them all the time, just little things. I don't even know where most of them are, but they're really funny. They were really funny. The ones that we still have that we can find are hilarious. Did you, uh, you but you do have an allegiance to film. I've read that you really like the look and, and the way shooting on oh, film. Yeah, and you definitely. shot BC Butcher on 16? On 16mm, yeah, uh, for sure. I, I'm i not going to shoot any projects that I'm serious about on anything but film. And what... What led you to that? Was that just you like the aesthetic? Um, yeah, actually, um, when I first saw Texas Chainsaw Massacres, Toby Hooper, rest in peace, yeah. um, I saw it and I was like, I'm only going to shoot 16 millimeter the rest of my life because this is the most beautiful movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and I made a vow then, and I'm not going to break it. Well, I mean, I shoot I shoot smaller things on Super 8 and stuff. I shoot a lot of music videos on Super 8, because I love Super 8 too, but feature films, I I feel very loyal to 16mm, because I think it looks better than any other film. Better uh, than 35. And I 
do want to ask so you've shot all of your music because you've done a number of music videos you've shot yeah, I've done like 20 or something a lot of them aren't out a lot of people like they're like hey make a video for me and then I make it and they just keep it and I'm just like okay sorry <laughs> but I've done like 20 of them <laughs> well you know that that leaves you in good company because Kevin Smith shot a whole documentary for Prince who also notoriously would shoot music videos by the score and then just put them away I think that like at the end of the world when the the bomb is dropped, there's going to be a vault in Paisley Park that's going to open yeah. up, and we're going to discover that there are all these like Prince albums and videos, and that's our music of the apocalypse. And maybe this is just it. We'll be like Prince videos and Kansas bowling videos <laughs> that will be left because we haven't seen them yet. Um, do you shoot all of those on film too? Is that a yeah? Of- yeah, I actually do the majority of them on Super Eight, but. Maybe maybe like a third of them I shoot on sixteen millimeter. Just it's actually cheaper to shoot videos on Super Eight. So I work with a lot of small indie bands and stuff. So Super Eight's usually what they go for. That's cool. That's cool. Now I want to bring it back around because you mentioned uh, Toby Hooper and the Texas Chainsaw mm-hmm. Massacre, and unfortunately, uh, at the time of this recording, we just had received news this past weekend of the passing of. Toby Hooper, who is the filmmaker behind such classics as Poltergeist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eaten Alive, Eaten Alive, Do not forget Eaten Alive, Invaders from Mars. Uh, he's a filmmaker who really left an impact on the genre. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned that seeing Texas Chainsaw and uh, the way the film looked inspired you and mm-hmm. kind of led you on this path. Uh, for many filmmakers who cite the movie, they, they talk about how significant Texas Chainsaw was to kind of the, the shift of horror in their own career because we're just sort of in the wake of Toby's passing and, and you reference that film as being pivotal. I'm kind of curious from your, your standpoint as a, a fan and a filmmaker, what is it about Texas Chainsaw that you think resonates with audiences? Mm, well, for me, it was, it's, there's like this certain, like gut feeling that I get when I watch a movie where I know I really, really like it, mm-hmm. where it's like you're waking up from a really bad dream and you want to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre makes me feel that way. And like a lot of Fulci movies make me feel that way. And same with like David Lynch and um, even people like Jodorowsky and Pasolini and people like that, where it's like this really gross feeling but it's just with these really beautiful images like the Marilyn Burns's eyes they're like piercing and there's like that one beautiful shot where Pam is walking up to the house like where you, where it's like kind of that ass shot of her in the in the short shorts with right. the blue sky behind everyone knows that shot it's so iconic because it's so beautiful Th- things like that they I don't know it's I feel like it's hard to accomplish because it's like this feeling I don't know if it's like that for other people, but I don't know. For me, it's like this weird sort of nightmarish thing that's very hard to capture. And he did in a really beautiful way. I think it's difficult to marry beauty with with things that are so gritty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that what's interesting is it does... It is the mark of a master who can bring that art to genre because, Mm -hmm. you know, existing in the space we do, I know that we see a lot of films that just are sort of like one tone or camp. But Mm -hmm. to bring that artistry, that's what sets the Toby Hoopers and the David Lynch's and the John Carpenter's and the Mm -hmm. the Jodorowsky's and Pasolini's apart. Uh, It's interesting. Well, and it it comes down to choices. It's all Mm -hmm. all the choices you make, which brings us back to your film career. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we t- I mentioned briefly uh, at the beginning that you made the feature BC Butcher and we talked about kind of your, your path to make it. Mm-hmm. And you said from the business standpoint, you wanted to make a horror film first. Mm-hmm. And that's what the trajectory of a lot of indie filmmakers. They, they know that it's easier to get distribution for an, uh, a horror film if it's made indie. But I think that maybe you're underselling the fact that even though you made an indie horror film, a slasher, essentially, you kind of went high concept with it because DC <laughs> Butcher is not your standard kids go to the woods and get attacked in present day. You said it during prehistoric times <laughs> with cave people. Uh, and you did it on an indie budget. So what was the decision to make a movie set uh, essentially before the dawn of man? Well, this also comes back to Roger Corman. Okay. <laughs> because Roger Corman said, make movies with what resources you have available to you. It was like he had a castle rented for an extra weekend, thought I might as well take advantage of this, and decided to make the terror in two days. Right. Um, <laughs> um, my dad lives in Topanga Canyon, so his backyard is the Topanga State Park. So I was like, I mean, just kidding. That's his backyard. I didn't shoot in a state park oh. without any permits. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, uh, that I had that to my as a resource. Um, so I thought, what can I do with this area? And I thought, well, I could make a caveman movie cavewoman movie and then i thought that would be very easy because i don't need to rent lighting equipment so it's all natural light and i just buy some cheetah print fabric rip it up make some costumes real quick and bam okay (laughs) so from that thought process to execution Mm -hmm. was it that easy or no yeah, it was pretty easy. Really? <laughs> <laughs> because I kind of get, as as a filmmaker uh, and person who's worked in production myself, kind of like Ajita thinking about trying to make a period piece film, let alone one. <laughs> well, like, w- see, well this, back this, is, this is why it's easy with camp, though, because if you're making a period piece, it does not have to be historically accurate. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> Im- so. An important lesson in the world of camp. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what were the challenges of making BC Butcher? Um, well, I mean, getting money was, of course, challenging. I, th- I thought I could just do a crowdfunding campaign and get money, but obviously that didn't happen. I raised like $1,500 or something like that. But I'd, I'd still lived with my mom at that point, so I didn't have any bills to pay. I was, I'd, I'd gra- I graduated high school when I was 16, so right when I graduated, I just got a job bussing tables at a Vietnamese restaurant. And then then I saved up eight months and raised enough money to shoot the film. So that was the most difficult part was getting money because I had to... That was like the actual work. Otherwise, everything was just real fun. That's great. And of course, you did the thing that a lot of filmmakers in the indie sphere do. You cast people you knew. No, I didn't, didn't? Know, I didn't no. know any of them. Oh, really? Because I was going to ask you, because there, there are a few standouts that, uh, you uh-huh. know, as, as someone who grew up when I did, uh, I remember Cato Caitlin in the news. But oh, yeah. yeah. Well, so Cato, so I was, um, so, yeah, I was, I'm very good friends with Rodney Bingenheimer, and I was at Rodney's house, and it was really messy, because he had a big pile of papers stacked up all the way to the ceiling almost on his coffee table, and I said, this is unacceptable i need to clean this for you so (laughs) i was cleaning rodney's coffee table and throwing away a bunch of junk and at the very bottom of the pile was kato caitlin's business card (laughs) 
<laughs> and because during the OJ trial, Rodney would go to IHOP with Cato all the time for some reason, just because Rodney is always friends with everyone at sort of the right time in there. Anyways, I don't know why or how that happened, but that business card was probably there from the OJ trial. That's from how, the 90s. That's how high this pile went. So I said to Rodney, because I was casting then, I was like, can I call Cato and ask him to be in my movie? And Rodney said, okay. I love that. <laughs> I love the idea of Rodney Bingenheimer uh, and Cato Caitlin going to International House of Pancakes. Uh, and I guess I get it. Like, you know, whenever you're in the midst of a very stressful situation, you want carbs. And what was more stressful than the OJ trial? That was two years of, of like, it, it was event TV. Like, I mean, obviously it was people's lives too. But when I was a kid, uh, they showed the verdict mm-hmm. at school. Like, they were just oh, like, yeah, okay, it's... we're taking a knee and we're going to watch this. I remember my band, I was in band. My band teacher was just like, ugh. I'm like, no, like, I think this is a moment. Like, Mm -hmm. he was disappointed that we couldn't do our warm-ups because, like, we were all going to go on to be (laughs) jazz musicians or whatever. I don't know. Um, But, yeah, I really liked Cato in the film, and I think the whole cast that you put together was excellent. So I, for some reason, thought that they were people you knew because that's what I would have done. So (laughs) tell me about the process of casting the movie. Well, it wasn't people I knew because... I, I had like three friends at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I was a loser in high school. Just kidding. I was really cool. Just nobody really got it. <laughs> I was, I was, That's the tact we're going to take. I was really it. obsessed with the Mac. So I dressed like a pimp every day. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then, well, then I went through a cowboy phase. I'd have a sheriff badge that I wear every day to school. But then, then there was like a point where they kind of merged. I was like a cowboy and a pimp. So I'd wear like my bell bottoms and my sheriff badge and the cowboy boots and so I had like three friends but I was still friends with all of them but anyways none of them are wanted to be actors or anything so um my well my sister's in the movie I obviously know my sister and my dad's in the movie briefly um but I, I got those people through just like uh different casting services in LA that I learned about just by like I don't know I don't even know how I learned about them but just different casting services <laughs> And you mentioned your sister Parker. Mm-hmm. Parker loved bowling. Parker loved bowling. Uh, International video vixen, trauma star. That's right. I've worked <laughs> with Parker before. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in a short that I wrote, and uh, she's a marvelous actor. And mm-hmm. I know that she's continuing down that path. You're a filmmaker and mm-hmm. an actor as well. Uh, was oh, the, it, the industry and filmmaking just kind of the genesis? Like, were your parents? And I know. We sort of talked about this, but were your parents interested in film? Is this where it started, or did you both just kind of... Um, well, definitely not my mom. My mom has no interest in film. My dad um, was... I guess he's somewhat interested, not really in the same type of movies we are, but he kind of did hold an importance over film, which I guess was sort of influential, but he would show us movies all the time, but not typically the type of movies that I'm into now, but... Every now and then, he would show us one, right. which would really strike a chord. Like my dad was the one that showed us David Lynch. Like he showed us, I think, I think, I don't know. I think we were like nine or ten or something when my dad was like showing us like Wild at Heart and Boogie Nights and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But otherwise, you know, he would show us like a pretty a lot of like mainstream sort of movies too. But then, but then from once the one the movies that would really stick with me were movies like that, and then I would on my own get into these little rabbit holes where then I would like he'd show us Quentin Tarantino when 
um, I had like a crush on like David Carradine when I was like seven years old because of Kill Bill. So then on my own, I you know want to find Death Race two thousand and right. all these other David Carradine things, and that's how that sort of happened. That's cool. So in a way, it's sort of my dad, but not exactly. My dad doesn't. I'm like, hey, dad, I'm gonna do a video with z-man from beyond the valley of the dolls next month and he doesn't know who that is so i don't know <laughs> but he supports it yes yeah, that's yes cool. now earlier you had mentioned that part of your plan for bc butcher uh or whatever your first one was going to be and, and it was bc butcher was that you wanted to make a trauma movie mm-hmm. and it is mm-hmm. and uh I want to talk a little bit about trauma because I also have a long history with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that for listeners who maybe are unfamiliar, trauma is the oldest independent film studio in the country, I think 45 years now. uh, And they're responsible for such things as the toxic Avenger Vegas in space return to Newcom high. I love Vegas in space. I love Vegas in space space too. It's a good one. In in many hundreds, hundreds of films in their Mm -hmm. catalog. And I kind of consider them to be the last bastion of the film underground. They're Mm -hmm. really holding the torch. Uh, and they are headed by this marvelous, unique individual named Lloyd Kaufman, who is mm-hmm. their president and uh, co-founder, and he's the creator of The Toxic Avenger. And I know that you and Lloyd have a good relationship, and um, you took them took BC Butcher to Troma, and they released it. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what Troma means to you, and also the, the film and the course that that has taken. Um, well, I'd always been a fan of trauma since I was really young. I think I actually watched like my first trauma movies just like on the internet when I was really young, first discovering what the internet was. I was always like a weird kid at school who'd be like, hey guys, like I know weird things on the internet. Like, look at, <laughs> look at this. <laughs> you know, I watched like Night Beast and, um, oh, Night Beast. It's a, a monster in the closet and then like Glass and Newcomb High. Um, so yeah, when I went to I went to New York right when I graduated high school too. I actually really wanted to move there, cause because uh, of the Ramones. But you know, once I realized, man, the Ramones aren't coming back, I was like, I'll just stay in LA. But <laughs> <laughs> I spent my seventeenth birthday on Joey Ramone's grave. Oh. I ate the grass on it. Wow, we are we. I'm putting a pin in this because we're coming back to that in a second. <laughs> Anyways, that was my trip in New York. I was 16, turning 17, and I went to visit Troma. Um, and I was just like, I'm gonna make a movie for you guys someday. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Because um, I'm sure they hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'd actually when I was in high school, I was either like 14 or 15, probably 15. I'd sent them a script that I wrote because it says that you can send them scripts, and it was this script that I wrote called "Death to Donna Disco." And it, the whole script is an allegory for what the Ramones did for music. And Donna Disco was this evil villain who s- stood for corporate radio. And she would um, br- brainwash little children and feed them to this monster she kept in her basement. And then this punk rock guy named Ramon. <laughs> International <laughs> flair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they kidnapped the wrong little kid. It was his little brother. And he had to go defeat Donna Disco. I want to see that movie. Also, I'm yes. sure Lloyd, if he read it, loved it. They probably never read it. Yeah, I'm sure. I, <laughs> just knowing knowing I, their submission style. but I, I just remember in high school, I, I gave it to all my friends to read. I was like, do you think I have a chance? Do you think trouble will make it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because Lloyd's like whole mission statement is sort of like uh, standing against media conglomerates and corporation. He doesn't like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, big, big corporate 
takeover of entertainment. So the idea that your story was about the death of disco should have really sort of appealed to him <laughs> had he read it, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't that well written, but I was 15, you know? It's my yeah. f- first, no, well, it wasn't my first script. Parker and I would write scripts when we were younger all the time, but. <laughs> but it was my first real script. Ooh. Well, maybe maybe you should revise it and, and return to Donna someday. Oh yeah. Uh, so you take the you you make the statement that you're gonna make a movie for Trauma, and then you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah. So I, I made it with um without any trauma involvement, and then when it was done, I just sent an email to Lloyd because his emails very easy to get like it's in one of his books i believe yeah yeah he's he <laughs> he just like out, email like, me yeah. yeah um and i was just like hey i'm 17 and i just shot a movie on 16 millimeter with kato kalen sounds cool huh <laughs> and he's like yeah let's have a meeting <laughs> so i met with lloyd and then he gave before he even saw it he just like wrote me a check to fund post-production and i was like okay cool and then i finished it and sent it to him and i was like will you put it out and he's like okay that's great. <laughs> I, and uh, you then had the premiere at, at the Egyptian Theater. At the Egyptian Theater. And I was there that night. Yeah. And a little point of interest for listeners of Dead for Filth mm-hmm. uh, I actually met our fabulous producer, Drew Phillips, that evening at the premiere. Really? Yeah, she and I met on the red carpet. Uh, I think I was standing talking to Lloyd. We were probably arguing or talking about something stupid. And uh, I, Drew had wanted to meet Lloyd and uh, then we started talking and here we are well, that's years beautiful. later so <laughs> you played a small part in making the show happen Kansas which that's, is one of the reasons we're excited to have you today it's really beautiful <laughs> <laughs> so what I've always liked about trauma is that they do kind of exemplify that there is a whole other world of art and way mm. to make a movie and that if um, you have a subversive or transgressive opinion uh, and you take the time and the blood and sweat and tears and money to make it, mm-hmm. it does deserve to be seen. Whereas mm-hmm. there are kind of gatekeepers to the multiplexes. Like we only sort of get a certain kind of movie at the theater. Trauma allows th- this whole other world of film to exist. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering as someone who released their first film through them and you know, watching those movies online that you mentioned, you had to have in some way connected to that aesthetic. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the importance of underground film. Um, well, it's definitely important, and it's definitely important that there is an avenue for these type of filmmakers because all sorts of films need to be seen. Right. <laughs> uh, wait, sorry, what, what was the question? What's the importance of... Which, you know, speak to the importance of, the, of, of underground art. Oh, I mean, it's pretty much the only important art is underground art because corporate art isn't art. Right. <laughs> That's, um, yeah. It, under, I mean, underground can mean a lot of different things, but right. once it gets to a sort of studio level, it doesn't, it's kind of, all the artistry is really taken out of it and it just becomes business. And I know I was talking about business before with Roger Corman, but Roger Corman mixed business with art. Right. Which is also important for a filmmaker, if especially if you're self-funding and you want people to see it, you have to th- be smart about different ways and be a little tricky about how to trick people into watching your art. 
Right. <laughs> but once it only becomes that and these movies with these like creepy brainwashing messages like um I don't really want to trash anything right now but <laughs> any any sort of movie with a message with the, the moral is homogenization or um capitalism it just becomes creepy and that's not art <laughs> right well and speaking of the underground and, and we talked about uh your love of the ramones mm-hmm. and your your pilgrimage to the the grave of joey ramone sweet joey yeah i know that uh in some places you have been referred to by the press as the real life riff randall oh i love that <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Riff Randall is the character played by PJ Souls in Rock and Roll High School, who is the ultimate Ramones fan and uh, in a way kind of exemplifies uh, the teenage punk rock spirit. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you know, Dead for Filth is sort of interested in queer culture and the queering of culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, what listeners in this sphere maybe don't realize is that, uh, you know, there's this kind of like strange um, well, not strange, but there's this sort of stereotype that gay men only listen to like pop music and divas mm-hmm. and things. But for a very long time, uh, there was a queer underground in the world of punk. Mm-hmm. And punk had like sort of seized control of the term queer and, and kind of like there were zines, Bruce Le Bruce, you know, the, you know, Joy, not Joy Division. Well, they were kind of gay. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the punk movement and uh your relationship to it and and what you think um we can talk about the queerness of it but i i there is this through line of 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 punk aesthetic and ideology in your work and so talk to me Mm -hmm. what drew you to punk well actually bc butcher is totally inspired by the ramones um because um the Ramones we were the, the Ramones were they were just trying to be the Beatles. Like they wanted to be a full spectrum pop group, but they were just a bunch of weirdos. So their and their music ended up being, you know, strange songs about sniffing glue and Nazi Germany and stuff. Like <laughs> um, but they really just wanted to be Dave Clark Five and because they were sick of music in the 70s, like Pink Floyd having like 20-minute songs and blah, blah, blah. And so their whole point was to strip music or to strip pop music back down to its roots. And that's why they have this sort of barbaric sound. So that's why they had the song Sheena as a punk rocker based off of Sheena, like the cavewoman. Right. Because they wanted it to be like barbaric caveman roots of music. <laughs> and I was like, you know, overanalyzing all these Ramones songs in my bedroom as a teenager. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to, you know, strip back down the slasher to its roots. I'm sick of all these psychological horror movies. I'm just going to make a caveman horror movie like the Ramones. Wow. That's actually, <laughs> and, that's deep. That's some deep thought about it. I Yeah, I mean, the Ramones were my life in high school. I think it's the perfect sort of music to listen to when you're that age. It's very perfect. I mean, now um, nowadays it's only Leonard Cohen is all I think about. But. Oh. <laughs> well, those refined rainy mornings at the Chelsea. 
oh my god I remember <laughs> you well at the Chelsea Hotel <laughs> uh, but see then again with Dee Dee Ramon I lived at the Chelsea Hotel and I went to the Chelsea Hotel and knocked on all the doors asking if I could see Dee Dee's room and I went so they're all very similar after all both produced by Phil Spector Leonard Cohen and the Ramones <laughs> one of the things we've talked about uh, in in previous weeks with some of our guests is the attraction to horror because to outsiders because it sort of represents an otherness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in a way, the punk ideology, would you say punk does that as well musically and politically? Does. Represents like an otherness or an outsider status. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, unless, I mean, with the Ramones, they weren't trying to be punk. They were right. being themselves. And so once, once it gets to a point, because punk sort of turned into everyone trying to be the Ramones, let's be right. honest. Absolutely. <laughs> So once it turns into that, you trying to be something else that's not exactly punk. If you're just yourself and you go out there and do whatever the hell you want, that is punk. Even though it's a word, I don't even really like that. I think it's very idiotic, actually. The term punk? Yeah, yeah. it just it drives me crazy because it's like, no, you're just conforming. You're trying to be the right. Ramones. <laughs> but I mean, it, I mean, there's obviously bands that weren't trying to be the Ramones. Sure. But I feel like the majority of punk bands are trying to be the Ramones. But the Ramones, they were just themselves, like. You know, Joey Ramone was actually institutionalized when he was younger. So they have songs about shock treatment and stuff. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, I'm punk. I'm crazy. I'm in a mental institution. Yeah, lock me up. It's like, no, this is the, that's who they are. Right. <laughs> well, I think that I think that what you're saying, too, about the term punk is it sort of got co-opted. Yeah. And then it turned into a whole sort of a capitalist ideology where it's like now they have the schools for kids punk schools right it's like ew gross <laughs> no, you, so disgusting <laughs> it's sort of like you can't make a midnight movie you can't make yourself punk you yeah it, just go out and make a movie make whatever movie you want and people can classify it how they want to classify it but don't go out trying to make something or trying to be something just just do be yourself exactly <laughs> and i think that kind of goes back to your your discussion about underground versus the, the air quotes mainstream mm -hmm. is that when there is a larger corporate involvement, mm -hmm. they're trying to tell you what something needs to be. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think there's a earnestness to the art that you just make yourself and release. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you're doing it for the right reasons, it is you, you are putting mm -hmm. yourself out there. Yeah. What's, oh, well, what's interesting about the term punk is that it was originally kind of a negative that mm -hmm. was reclaimed by the Hate movement. Punk. Yeah. It's like a it's like a wild one thing, Marlon Brando sort of like biker thing. <laughs> and I think that's what's kind of an interesting correlation between the term punk and the reclamation by the movement making it like this cool thing is is we sort of did the same thing with queer. Because mm -hmm. it was definitely a negative. Yeah. And uh to a certain generation it still kind of has that sting to it. And I don't uh argue with people who who don't like the term. But I think that by taking it and making it a, a, a banner of power has been really interesting, too. And I think there is that through line between the punk and queer movements, because they oftentimes with queer core and things were, were bound together, is it's sort of like, well, if you don't like us, we don't care because this is who we are. Mm -hmm. And there's something really rad about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite videos of yours is the one that you did for uh, Kill My Coquettes. Oh. 
yeah. And uh, that video is really amazing. I think you, you you played it the night of the premiere, right? Before you yes. see Butcher? Yes. Yes. And uh, Cherry Curie from The Runaways is in it. Mm-hmm. Tell me about getting her involved in that. Oh, she's awesome. I... Had I met her before I did that video? I'm not sure. I well, because I, Rodney was already going to be in the video, and um, yeah, so we're just thinking about different people to put in it, and I don't know. Yeah, Rodney just helped me like call Richie and Cherie, Richie Ramon. Is oh, that's the, right. Yeah, it was yeah. the other guy in it, and um, yeah, and they just both agreed to do it. It was fun. <laughs> and that was all very. That's it's like a beauty pageant. Yeah, kind it's of deal. A, yeah, beauty pageant. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, uh, definitely a disturbed beauty pageant, but it's, yes, it's great. It's a great video. Kind. One of my favorite movies of all time is Smile. Have you seen Smile? No, I don't think that I have. It's Bruce Stern as a beauty pageant judge. It's like the, it. it's probably like my favorite screenplay ever. It's so good and so dark and funny. It's it's fantastic. I'll have to check it out and a recommendation for listeners as well. Actually, one of the things I like to ask all of our guests are uh, what do you recommend what what are what are you watching or what do you think people need to see that's out there right now Mm, well my favorite movie of all time is is uh, actually i don't even think it's like on dvd or anything i just found out the other day it's i think it's in the public domain which is bizarre is don juan or if don juan were a woman no i've never heard of this oh my god it's bridget bardo's last movie it's directed by roger vadim she has sex with jane birkin in it Oh, it's a perfect movie. It has this awesome theme song. It's like every single scene, every single shot in the film is poetry. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. And, and it's it's very rare. It's a very rare film. It's fantastic. And Roger Vadim's great. Bruce Bardot's amazing. And Bruce Bardot has sex with another woman, mm-hmm. which is sort of unusual for Vadim's career because he was very kind of like aggressively heterosexual in a lot of mm-hmm. his movies. There was sort of like an objectification. And I'm not, I mean, maybe mm-hmm. there's objectification here, but I kind of like that of all the movies that you would suggest on a queer podcast, one with some <laughs> some queer content. Uh, yeah, I'll have to check that out. I've never actually seen it. It's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. My Another one of my favorite movies is Don't Torture a Duckling. The Fulci film. Yes. I have seen that, yes. That's a wonderful movie. It has Barbara Boucher as a pedophile and <laughs> Florinda Vulcan as a child murdering voodoo woman and an evil priest. I'm sensing a la Jim Jones. <laughs> a theme of sexual aggression. <laughs> um, you've also been doing some acting recently. Uh, you either did you you were just in a project called Primitiva. Could you tell me about that? Oh yeah, Primitiva. That was that's actually going to be interesting. Um, I was kind of a, I was kind of real rich at the beginning of this year for some reason. I kept getting all these good paying jobs and oh, me, and me and my sister, we had all this money and we're like, let's go on a vacation, tropical vacation. Woo. So we were going to Costa Rica. And, but we're. By the way, I follow you on social media and you are always traveling. <laughs> like every time I see Kansas, she's just I'd like. You're in Las Vegas or Costa Rica or somewhere really <laughs> fabulous. And I'm like sitting in my apartment in Hollywood and I'm like, oh, what am well, I doing? <laughs> it's actually not smart because I'm whenever I get like money that's like above my average amount of money, I'm just like, oh, let me go on vacation, spend it all. And then I'll be really broke when I get back. But <laughs> it's not that smart. But yeah, so I did that same thing. I spent all my money in Costa Rica, but we found this like really cheap house on Airbnb that fit 11 people. So we're like, okay, let's invite a shit ton of people. So we invited, sorry, I don't mean to. Yeah, you can. So we invited, I think we went with 
seven people to Costa Rica and it just happened they were all sort of in the film industry so we're just like let's all make a movie while we're here so you made a movie while you were on vacation yeah and how how long (laughs) feature length movie um how long of a shoot was that uh well we were there for eight days but it was pretty much like three days of travel so we pretty much shot a feature in five days wow well congratulations <laughs> and you so it was just with the group of people that you went with did you travel with equipment so did, was this yeah. something that you knew that you were going to do going no it was just kind of last minute well, one of our friends daniel who went works for browsers the porn company so he had really easy access to a bunch of equipment so he just brought all the browsers equipment down. all right <laughs> i don't know if i can say that he did that but i don't know well we're just spilling all we're sorts of tea here spilled, today yeah. so sorry <laughs> but yeah <laughs> sponsored by browsers yeah um, <laughs> unbeknownst um, to them but yeah uh yeah but it's great he like brought a drone and shit this i i didn't direct this my my friend kevin directed it he was there i me and my friend natasha natasha didn't go but we like wrote kind of a loose screenplay and and now we have sandy nelson doing an original soundtrack for us which is really awesome to me because I love Sandy Nelson. I've always loved Sandy Nelson. And he's the teen beat guy. Yeah. 50s, 60s, instrumental daddy-o. I love that. <laughs> That's super cool. Yeah. And remind me that you were also in a movie uh, this year uh, where you shot a movie this year called Absolute Vow, and that has something to do with Jesus? <laughs> like, yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually starring my sister, the beautiful, talented Parker Love Bowling. And it's directed by Jared Masters, who directed a bunch of uh, schlocky films and serious films. Um, like After School Massacre and Eight Reels of Sewage and mm-hmm. a bunch of movies like that. He has right. his own production company. Um, yeah, it's based off of a story from the Bible. Yeah, my, my sister, she she plays a virgin with no name, and she's she's on this journey with her friends. Um, I'm, I play one of them, and it's kind of just these people that she meets along her way on this very strange journey, which is based off of this really obscure Bible story, uh, she- which is v- rarely referred to, so Jared thought he should make it into a film. But it's bizarre and sort of violent and weird, and it should be very interesting. I like bizarre, violent, and weird. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, Aki Aliong, he's an he's an actor. He was he like battled Chuck Norris and stuff. And um, yeah, I like molest him in it. There's a, again with the sexual <laughs> aggression. Uh, I also like that there's this like one thread of sexual aggression and two you in movies that are set during uh, very difficult times to make movies, Bible times, prehistoric. Uh, it just happens that way. Yeah. Um, anything? Anything coming that's set in in present day? Yeah, I'm actually starring in a film alongside one of my good friends, Violet Paley, called The Electric Complex, where we play strippers. <laughs> um okay. that's that's gonna be a fantastic movie actually um the director is jessica janos she directed like this really good manson short and she directed a movie for lifetime she's a total badass um but yeah me and violet we, i there's i mean i already shot i molested someone in that too i already shot it <laughs> was there something <laughs> wrong with me and my typecast of some weird sort of pervert i don't know but yeah we just shot this great scene with a like a cop's bachelor party it's really great put a put a leash on a cop and i ride him and <laughs> so i i pile a piece on him it's funny you know because you deal with kind of difficult subject matter and we've been talking a lot about the punk ideologies and the underground and and uh 
transgressive statements. Um, I'm wondering if because of the sort of material that you often deal with, do you feel that you face more unique challenges in, in making movies, getting movies made? Uh, uh, yes. Um, actually, I'm about to go into production for my second feature film, like, next week. Um, which I am going to self-fund. <laughs> okay. Um, because it's been extremely... Di- I've spent... I mean, I've, I've definitely been working a lot since my movie came out, but basically I haven't been directing my own feature because I've been talking to different producers about getting funding, and it's extremely difficult. Um, and, I, I mean, I have a script that I've been trying to get uh, produced about um, eco-terrorism and overpopulation issues surrounding that environmentally, and... Mm-hmm. So that's been quite a challenge. I shouldn't really be surprised by that. If I had a movie about a bunch of naked girls getting killed, I feel like it would be easier. But um, yeah, it's been really difficult. Um, But whatever. I'm cool. I'm opening up a credit card. It's going to be awesome. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But I, um, yeah, so I just decided, eh, whatever. I'm just going to stop. And uh, are you allowed to tell us the name of that film or... Uh, well, I'm making a different one. I'm still going to try to get actual funding for that okay. other one I just mentioned. This one, I don't want to say the title of it, but I'm making a like a pseudo industrial film, like with a kind of like Faces of Death. Okay. With like a narrator, um, but about delinquent teenage girls, and it'll go into sort of vignettes about these girls. And um, yeah, if, if you're listening and you're a teenage girl and you want to be in my movie. <laughs> hit me up <laughs> which um i normally ask what what people are working on next but i think that's a pretty good button and also i forgot to mention it's based off of a monkey's song oh yes that so that will be uh, a good lead into the final thing that i want to talk to you about the monkeys, the monkeys. because you know we've talked a lot about um challenging art and the Ramones and the in this the kind of world Ugh, of talk about punk. But talk Mike about Nesmith. punk. You are <laughs> number one punk in the world. A big fan of Mike Nesmith of the Monkeys. Mm-hmm. I've, it's something that I've seen you talk about in interviews and on social media. Mm-hmm. And uh I want to <laughs> kind of dig into that. Tell me tell me about your fascination with with Mike Nesmith. Okay, first I just want to say Everyone should watch the show Party Legends on Viceland because I have a segment where they actually made, they animated a cartoon of me and Mike Nesmith and told, and while I told my story about getting caught in a SWAT shootout after meeting Mike Nesmith, you should watch that if you want to hear that story. Anyways, Mike Nesmith, so the monkeys, they were created, they were like man-made band made in a factory right? by all these producers. They didn't know each other. They were put together for a TV show. Basically, that was going to be it. It was just going to be easy, do what you're told, little wind-up monkey toys. But by the time their third album came around headquarters, Mike Nesmith had had enough because he was too smart for all of that. And he went up to Don Kirshner, the producer, and he punched a hole in the wall and said, that could have been your face. And basically threatened with violence to have creative control over their third album. And also by the second season of the show, got totally bonkers, psychedelic, um, amazing, with these, like, 
crazy anti-capitalist messages that were Saturday morning cartoons for little kids, basically. And is that around the time they made Head as well, right? Or did that came well, later? Head was after this. the show got canceled because it got canceled because it got too weird. Like the last episode of the monkeys, like they have like footage of Hitler. They like cut into it and stuff like it's insane. I love the monkeys, especially Mike Nesmith. But Head was they called it their group suicide because you know in the movie they all jump off the bridge and stuff but they, they it was sort of their farewell because they knew that what had been created was over right. but mike nesmith is brilliant he went on to form mike nesmith in the first national band and then mike nesmith in the second national band <laughs> and then had all these great solo albums and then he went on to create the modern music video invent mtv and become a cult movie producer and a novelist and he's a genius. And uh, what I think is interesting about Mike Nesmith is that he and Frank Zappa enjoyed mm-hmm. a friendship. Frank Zappa being mm-hmm. definitely an iconoclast. Well, yeah. Well, Frank Zappa was friends with all the monkeys. Was he? Yeah. I'd like. I love the idea of Frank Zappa and Davy Jones kicking it because yeah. it just kind of like <laughs> flies in the face of any conventional knowledge. Um, <laughs> And just just for me, I, I have to mention that Mike Nesmith wrote the Linda Ronstadt Stone Ponies song, Different, uh, Different Drum. Drum, which is, in my opinion, a perfect pop song. It really is. And it's like a song with a good message. Well, I guess it's not. It's interesting when you when it's like when it's Nes singing it, because it's basically like him kind of blowing off a girl but it's interesting when a girl's saying it because it's like she's saying she's too good for this guy yeah it's cool it's cool it's a cool girl anthem like i like i love that i love that about it and her Mm -hmm. voice was so powerful Mm -hmm. um but yeah so that's cool i just i just have heard you talk about mike nesmith uh in various platforms before and i wanted to know because to the outsider who maybe doesn't have the information about Mike Nesmith's sort of rebellious streak. Mm-hmm. He, he does look very much like he was part of this manufactured for TV band. Mm-hmm. And the monkeys still get such a bad rap, like they won't be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, what stuck-up assholes over there? They're like, oh, the, they were in a real band. It's like, uh, do you need a history lesson? You're supposed to know everything about rock and roll over there. Like, hello. They also have a lot more hits than a lot of real <laughs> bands. So Yeah. <sighs> makes me so angry but it's just it's so disrespect fun to think about that kind of divide uh you know you've got the ramones who in a way like exemplify the underground and then you've got the monkeys who for a while exemplified saturday morning tv yeah but there's sort of a common Mm -hmm. a a common uh rebelliousness to them that people don't always realize Mm -hmm. yeah Ugh, except the Ramones rebelled in a different way. They rebelled against the whole scene they created by going to record a pop album with Phil Spector. Like, ugh, my heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kansas, I think that we're probably uh, just about out of time. Um, so is there anything else you want listeners to know about you and your your career before we head out into the dark? Um, yesterday, someone started a conspiracy theory about me that I'm John Bonet Ramsey. Okay, uh, so how how did they institute that theory into the world? Was this a social media thing? Yeah, you should you should check it out. Uh, so where can people find you if they want to follow you? Um, you should follow me on Instagram at Kansas Bowling. 
Um, it's the same thing for Twitter, but I don't really care as much about Twitter, but <laughs> it's there. <laughs> um, and I have a website, but you can get to my website through what I just mentioned. So Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I really appreciate it. If you uh, out there are listening, uh, have the opportunity, please check out Kansas feature film BC Butcher and keep your eye out for her music videos. She kicks major ass. Thank you. Uh, but more importantly, keep an eye out for my next feature because that's more important than my first feature. Yes. Always, <laughs> always look towards the future. And uh, thank you again for coming on today and for uh, talking all manner of craziness with us. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate it very much. And uh, I'm your host, Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. And as always, I am yours in glam and gore. Good night <laughs> and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.